0: Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a daily Planet Productions podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Wild Bo's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman and this is my recording of a terrible incident involving Scott Daly. Let me just push play.
1: This is the weekly podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of horrible parents that I hate so much. Bigoted politicians that I hate so much. And alien based based death powers that I hate so fucking much. As we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial, this week Matt, we wrap up Arc Seven Torch with two interludes, interlude X and Y, dealing with poor little Kenzie and a, a swell guy named
0: Gary Neves. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of sad stuff happening here, Scott. I think we can I think we should let people know we had a lot of trouble writing the intro for this episode because. There's no, there's no jokes. There's no jokes ready at hand for these pair of no. And it's,
1: man, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's definitely a heavy one. This was one, you know, going through and like when you, when you're going through and taking notes and having to like reread the chapter over and over again, I was just like mad all day because <laughs> I was just like, um, upset at characters yeah and it's just it's just like I was just I felt like I was in this funk all day because I'm having to focus on these really terrible things that were happening and I man it's it's I mean it's it's wonderful work it's going to be fun to talk about but really having to just live in that world and pay attention to each and every word when they were all terrible words was was a little rough
0: yeah yeah it's it's pretty, pretty cool. I think we'll talk about this as we get into it. But but I, I think this is my the first one of the first things I said to you after I read McKenzie chapter in particular was like, there's there's writing, you know, there's putting together sentences and knowing which words to use and structuring stories. And then there's this other skill of like, psychological insightfulness of of assembling a perfectly believable, realistic character that you could believe was a real person who who is completely different from any other character that we've met in the story. And and having that just work seamlessly. And I, I don't I don't know if I should call that part of writing, but whatever it is, it's it's amazing.
1: Yeah, and I think that happens twice in these two chapters, right? I, I yeah. think like we we're introduced to we, we get we get so much insight into Kenzie and everything that happened to her, but we're introduced to this entirely new character, um, who is an, an equally complex guy that there's a lot to say about. And it's kind of incredible that we just keep doing this again and again. And it, it, it I think Wildbow makes it look easy at times. It's like, oh, you just set up this character and you just Tell his backwards, his backstory, and then everyone will understand him. But no, there's there's a lot of challenge to that. There's a lot of things you have to do, a lot of scaffolding you have to put up to make the character believable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully we can spend some time talking about how that's done today. Yeah, I think so. So before we uh, get into the chapters, let's do our uh, community spotlight where we talk about uh, the comments from last week's thread. So the discussion question last week was, uh, "What's your favorite example of subtle foreshadowing in Worm or Ward?" And got some great moments. You know, a lot of these, I, I was like smiling reading because I'm like, "Yeah, I, I remember not only I, I remember rereading them when I was going through through these chapters for We've Got Worm and seeing them and thinking, oh, that, it's just, it's a shame I can't talk about this and what and what great foreshadowing this is.' But uh, um, now we get to talk about it. So. Uh, yeah, so
1: you're like living, living through We've Got Worm again, kind yeah, of. Yeah,
0: that's true. Uh, Lemony 2 uh, brings up in Insinuation 2.6, uh, Taylor saying, I just don't get why you want me. I control bugs. That's not going to stop Alexandria, Glory Girl, or Aegis. Um, which is, which is <laughs> delightful.
1: Yeah, that is. that is. I mean, that's that's just fun little minor stuff, right? That yeah. like, it's just like throw almost almost a throwaway line that you don't even realize matters as much of it as it does
0: right a, a particularly savvy person might catch the implication but but yeah no it's it's, it's stuff that's just there to be fun on reread yeah yeah
1: uh, next up is wanson uh who mentions dinah's amber alert there was this is post bank robbery and they're talking about um how if if their bank robbery made it into the news and, and they the, the liner said we made page three of the bulletin coming behind a one and a half page story on an amber alert and a general motors advertisement so that's dina being kidnapped that's just right there in our faces that we didn't realize until much later in the story
0: yeah that's really interesting because literally until like now i don't think i actually parsed that it was a one and a half page story it's like in a newspaper yeah. one and a half page story is quite a thing so it's it is definitely very, yeah attention being drawn to it, yeah. Dr. Edit Watt uh, mentions basically just Kepri as accumulation of a lot of foreshadowing. So they describe how Kepri was foreshadowed in a number of different ways at different levels as an as like a natural extension of all the themes and character motifs of the work.
1: Yeah, and I think I picked up on some of that stuff because I remember we had some speculations of mine related to that, but not near all of it for sure.
0: Yeah. Right. And and I think that's what's what they were kind of pointing out was it's not just like plot foreshadowing. It's more like character development foreshadowing to you. It was a pretty interesting comment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, confusion st- steep hands says everything about Kenzie as well as, hey, don't swear. Um, the, I think I think those those motifs, those repeating motifs Wildbo likes to use a lot that like. That some characters have certain phrases and things that they say, and he he does set those up for really dramatic beat landings. I liked how you pointed out last week that the the whole how embarrassing thing could have been a setup to lead to that one moment where she storms into the garage, into her workshop after everything that just happened and and says that line and, and how much more impactful it is because it's been set up like that. Yeah, Exactly. But I think that was another cool thing that I I wanted to do in a little more detail. I only got to do it for arc seven, but I think it would be a very interesting project to go back um, and read everything with Kenzie again with with the new context we have now. I mean, like specifically her, her interactions with her parents, but also just like when she smiles and how we now have to interpret that as the exact opposite of what we would have. Yeah. Um. And and, and I remember you and I like. Pointing out moments where like she smiles and we're like, oh, that's ominous. Like she's like getting a kick out of this. And now you're you're thinking back was like, well, actually, that's her being really worried about something.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I feel like reading Ward a second time, especially once it's done and we've read the whole thing. I feel like reading it a second time is going to be a very different experience because a lot of this story uh, relies on these Secrets and yeah. uh, revelations that, you know, everything's going to be different. You know, we don't know what Chris's deal is. I imagine a lot of stuff with Chris is going to read differently when we do find what, what that is.
1: Sure. Well, I think we've just announced our next show, which is we've got Ward again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we've got Ward except with foreknowledge. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Hero of Old Iron mentions Regent and Imp's banter leading up to Regent's death. And basically says the fastest way to get yourself killed if you're uh, not black and not a virgin or not a non-virgin woman is to talk too much about tropes. Um, Yeah, which is exactly what he does. Yep.
1: Poor regent. Yeah. Uh, AZ Project Melee says, um, is this chapter 4.1? Yeah. Okay. Uh, The quote is, it makes sense, I said distractedly. So that's that's one. Who was the murderer in the group? Alec returned from the stall wearing a Kid Win shirt. That's that's clever. I didn't catch that one. That the one the time they ask for the murder, who the murderer is, that the the text immediately cuts to the murderer. Yeah, Yeah. I was too focused on the Kid wind shirt. I didn't pay attention to the murder part. Uh,
0: That's an excellent sleight of hand there. Yeah. So I guess we also need to do. uh, We've got worm again. Again, (laughs) I think it would be fun. Like, I don't know
1: how we would have time for it, but it would be fun to just do like a one episode. Hey, we both read the book again. And here's the stuff that jumped out at us.
0: Yeah. okay, I'll I'll reread it tomorrow afternoon and we'll talk about it. Okay,
1: it doesn't take that long, does it? No,
0: no. EXE JPEG uh, talks about Victoria's use of her force field in the community center fight. Uh, hinting at the existence of the wretch and uh, I agree that was fun. That was fun at the time Because we knew something was going on. Everyone was saying okay. What is the deal? She she throws her force field out She does what with her force field. It's never and and it's not an accident We now realize that her internal, you know internal perspective wasn't focusing on the force field because she was actively kind of unwilling to think about it or look at it too closely
1: Yeah. And I think it's that's great tying into a a little beat we get from Kenzie in this episode, because other people notice that Victoria does certain things when she's about to use her force field, even if she's not aware of them.
0: Yeah, that makes I don't don't think we're going to have I don't think I'm going to remember to bring it up when that happens. But that makes me wonder if Kenzie can actually see her force field with one of her cameras. And yeah, so Kenzie might already know exactly what the wretch is and what it looks like. That
1: That could be. Yeah. Arena Venera says Arms Master's character arc foreshadowing Taylor's. Uh, this was a really good comment that I think is probably worth reading in its entirety. Uh, the poster points out a number of parallels between Arms Master's arc and and, and how Taylor's really falls out. The, the relentless focus leading to bad choices, followed by imprisonment, followed by focusing on a larger goal while trading away their humanity and ultimately getting a happy ending of sorts. Taylor's not dead. Shut up.
0: Yeah uh exactly scott yeah that, that was a really cool comment <laughs> i i was like yeah I, I guess there are some parallels and then they kind of laid them all out and i was like yeah cool wow yeah um, shinichi07 brings out uh 2.x and uh with from Worm, um and it, amy has made some some quip or, or comment about messing with the guy's head who she healed and uh victoria says you didn't actually and then Amy says, No, nothing was broken. I didn't screw up anything beyond a temporary numbness. But he doesn't know that. Fear and doubt will complete the effect. And the suggestion becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Amy, Victoria laughed, hugging her sister with one arm. Weren't you just saying you weren't going to mess with people's heads?
1: <laughs>
0: uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, the joke was that she was going to give him erectile dysfunction. I remember <laughs> that now.
1: Yeah. Uh, the chairman says just general hints about the Travelers, Echidna, alternate Earths, Earths that are like spread out throughout the early parts of the story. That That is true. There were some I, like I remember trying to figure out all this stuff about the Travelers. They were so mysterious. Right. And they were talking about like the, the thing about that. They seem like a team that, um was really good at strategizing together and the the hints about the games and, um, all this, all this little stuff we're being spoon fed about Echidna and and Noel and what's going on there. Um, and then, yeah, we, we do put like, like the the casual offhand mentions of there being an alternate earth that is used really just seemingly as like an innocuous joke, right? It's just like in this earth, there's different Schwarzeneggers. Yeah. Different
0: star Wars. Yeah. Changes
1: but um ends yeah. up paying off in a huge, a huge way.
0: Yeah. One, one tiny traveler's bit someone in the thread pointed out was that the travelers offhandedly mentioned that they'd been in an inbringer fight before, Um, which was of course the, the seamer event that brought them. Oh, there.
1: wow. Yeah. Yeah. I missed that comment. That's yeah. Yeah. I think I did wow. too. Uh, Jojo,
0: Jojo, 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 eight mentions uh two dot <laughs> six from worm and, uh, uh, Lisa is, is speaking to Taylor essentially right after they met or um, – no, not after they met, after after Taylor shows up at the um, rooftop um, the, the day after they first meet. And Lisa says, you have two choices. You can take that as a gift, a thank you for intentionally or not saving our ass from lung last night, and maybe a bit of incentive to count us among your friends when you're out in costume and doing dastardly deeds. Her grin widened as if she'd said something she found amusing. Maybe it was the irony of a villain talking about dastardly deeds or how corny the phrase was. Um, and of course the foreshadowing is that, well, I don't even know if, I don't know if you call this foreshadow. I mean, I guess it is foreshadowing, but also it's just like consistent character writing because Wildo knows that Lisa already knows that Taylor actually wanted to be a hero. So she's yeah kind of just lying and thinks it's funny. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's, I think it's interesting, like the line between deliberate setup and Stuff that's literally only going to pay off once you go back and read it again, Um, because like this in in retrospect, this seems really obvious, right? Like. Everything we know about this interaction, it seems very obvious why she's smirking here and and this could even be the moment that she got a read with her power that fills her in on the fact that Taylor actually wanted to be a good guy like this. This could be that moment. It's early enough in their interaction that it could be, um, but I, I just think it's it's very interesting that I don't know if we call it setup because I don't know if it, it was intentionally trying to set that up, but it's it's still doing something for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah, it, yeah, and it's just no, you know, knowing what you know about the characters, that's that's totally what Lisa would do. So yeah, yeah.
1: All right, Macy um, says Scion introduced at the end of Arc One as a bit of seemingly innocuous world building. Yeah, that's very true. Um, it, it's like, I think that that set me on the path of Sion's going to matter by the end of the story in some big way. When you start when you start like this is our first interlude is introducing Sion. Um, he's seemingly the one we don't know he's the one that brought the powers, but he's the first one with powers. Um, we're, we're kind of told at the very beginning. So we we set everything up very quickly that he's going to be the key to all this to the point where like I'm surprised that the it's going to be Scion that ends the world revelation is is as much of a revelation as it was to me. When you think back on how kind of deliberately we set him up in the early going.
0: Yeah, I was talking with some people about this recently, and I think the consensus was that the reason it worked was that there are so many valid red herrings floating around at the time. You've got Jack doing crazy things with clones. You've got Nilbog running rampant. Um, that's true. So 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 like you you probably do suspect Cyan at that point in time, but you suspect like there's so much other stuff going on that you aren't sure and that's what that's what matters. Yeah, that's true. Uh bam 3211 uh just brings up all of the kind of very scanty mentions of innbringers and the slaughterhouse 9 uh in in the earlier arcs of Worm well before any of those things show up just kind of priming you to kind of be on the lookout for those words and I think that's a another cool world building uh yeah
1: I remember the first time Taylor brought up the end bringers and even like saying the word made uh, Lisa uncomfortable Mm -hmm. in that whole conversation and like how how viscerally that comes off where you you have no idea what it was but you know you know what it means
0: right Lisa who's very hard to perturb is like you're being morbid Um, yeah
1: yeah just by saying the word "end," like just saying the end bringers exist. You're yeah. being morbid.
0: Right. All right. That's it for the discussion. Th- those are, those are great. I was, I'm always happy to be reminded of those. Um, yeah. I thought,
1: yeah. Thanks for participating in that. Everyone, we read more than uh, we normally do with this. Cause there were so many great ones. I, I, we could tell y'all had fun with that one and yeah, that makes we, us happy.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's get into it. We begin chapter seven dot X, Kinsey's interlude, and we follow up the go. previous stellar chapter was another fantastic very lengthy and very satisfying chapter this time an interlude from the pov of kinsey and scott i think there were multiple posts in the reddit this week like top level posts that were just thanking wild bow for this chapter yeah i saw so many um the latest interlude fucked me
1: up posts and like days afterwards it's it's just one of those pieces of literature that leaves you changed by the end of it. And I don't mean just like your, your perspective on character changed. I think like you've, you're just, you're just kind of a different person. And I think that's what the best writing does. Um, I am lucky enough that I've never had to go through something even remotely close to the things Kenzie has to go through as a child. But I did see several people who have sadly gone through similar things and them like applauding how well the, this chapter like captured the feeling that th- that people have like got into the mindset of of children going through this kind of abuse, and I think that's super commendable that uh Wildbo was able to do that um it's It's obviously something I can't relate to, but I certainly can empathize with
0: yeah, it must be difficult, and that to bring back to what I was talking about earlier, uh just getting yourself into the headspace of being able to work out what that must be like um sounds very taxing
1: yeah i mean like like i said i just having to sit with it just reading it yeah. and and analyzing it got put in a funk i can't imagine like constructing it how yeah. how rough that would be yeah and it's um, one of these
0: you know books books and stories are empathy generating machines because you know intellectually and you can feel empathy on some level for you know, a kid who's being raised in a situation like this, but this is, you know, just knowing that and maybe having a bit of compassion is very different from being dragged through it vicariously the way this chapter does. And it puts you in a whole different frame of mind and, and really kind of awakens your empathy in a different way. And I think that's, you know, one of the more uh, incredible things about writing.
1: Yeah. I, man, I completely agree with that. That's really well said. Um, so Throughout this, I mean, we're going to try really hard. I think, especially in this chapter, I spent a lot of time on this. I know you did too. I, I want to show everyone loved this chapter. I think it was pretty universally loved. But I want to. What I'm really interested in doing, and it's probably what we normally do, but I'm really interested in in like finding out why we loved it. Why does it work this way? Why and how does it work on us the way it does? And I hope by the end of of this, we've accomplished that because. Yeah. That's the, that's the most like we could tell you like it's great all day, but why, how is it great?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I agree. We need to, we'll do our best. Yeah. So uh, one of my first thoughts as we get into this chapter was that I was terrified for Victoria uh, because Kinsey's thinking things like Victoria was a threat, not an enemy threat, but a problem and a danger. If she talked to others, said the wrong things and everything could blow up out of control and you know, Kinzie's lost control of the situation. And from sitting in her head, she seems to be willing to do almost anything to get control back. She keeps thinking this could be fixed. And, and her head is a much scarier place than I even expected it to be.
1: Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I was kind of joking last week when I was saying, Victoria, get out of there, get out of the house. Um, but but there were moments at at the start of this chapter that I honestly felt that like I didn't know what was going to happen here. I think we're, we've been so primed by everything with Yamada, with with um, Victoria's kind of like kind of paranoid nature sometimes we've been primed to to expect something in this group is really bad and then we get this chapter where um there's something going on with their parents and 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 you're just like is this it is it is it Kenzie that she was worried about is this is this happening now what is this it is and now she's gonna go nuts and try to kill Victoria like you're you're almost like you you go down that that route for just a little bit and you eventually come back from there but at first yeah absolutely
0: yeah, I mean I, I was I was actually like probably more scared for the protagonist than I've ever been for any protagonist in a story because generally you know the protagonist isn't gonna die, like generally. But mm-hmm. I was like like reflecting on what we were talking about last episode where it's like Victoria has sort of systematically disregarded all of the red flags that really should have kept her from getting into the situation in the first place. Yeah. And maybe her, maybe her like character, you know, punishment or whatever is. Yep you 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 made a mistake. You know you you get you get punished for it. You you die now. I don't know. I yeah. I, I thought it was possible. Which is the sign of great writing to me is when you can make me worry about the protagonist in the middle of a very long story. Yeah.
1: As just kind of a side note on this, um, one of the things I actually like that this episode, this this chapter does is we never like get an explicit confirmation on what her parents put in the food. Like there's never a moment where, where we learn what, what it was that they were actually trying to do. Yeah. And I like that because it doesn't actually matter. I mean, it, the, the focus on here is Kenzie. What's going on with her? Why is she doing this? The focus is not on what were, were they poisoning her? Were they drugging her? Like that's, that doesn't matter in, in the immediate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree.
1: So one of my f- favorite things about, interludes in worm and war two, I guess was getting to see our point of view character from someone else's perspective. We talked about this a lot in, um, um, in the original episode. And when we got to see Taylor from someone else's perspective and Victoria is no different here. So we, we get in these moments to see these little beats of, Kenzie looking at Victoria and us getting to see her from an outside perspective Um, like like we have this moment where Victoria says like first of all is like are you okay so we see Victoria from someone else's perspective and we see this person that first of all primary their primary goal in all of this is is Kenzie okay. And then we also have this this moment where we we kind of talked about that a little bit where Victoria stepped away from the door towards more open, more open space like she did any time she wanted to be able to use her wonky force field. So once again, um, this is Victoria like thinks that maybe people don't know enough about her, her force field enough about what the wretch, but people do notice stuff. And I I like getting to see all these beats. I like we we kind of get to get to see her from a different perspective a little bit.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's definitely not surprising that the surveillance tinker, like the one who has the seating chart uh, and obsesses over every detail would would have noticed this. I think this was probably another detail that made me scared for Victoria actually was like Victoria. She's being very kind and compassionate, but also she's aware of the possibility of danger. But also Kinsey. Is aware that she's aware of the possibility of danger which means that uh, she doesn't really have like the element of surprise here um, so I was like I wouldn't have been a surprise if Kinsey tried to you know get her in this chapter that's how things go anyway
1: yeah yeah but I like I like that it goes in that order I like that first and foremost I'm concerned about you that doesn't mean I'm not gonna be ready to defend myself in case something goes down but but my primary focus here is are you okay and then she goes, are they OK talking to the parents? And then it's like, OK, you made a movement. You reach for something. You reached for a tool. I'm going to defend myself. And that I mean, show we kind of systematically show Victoria's priority system while not even being in her head. And I think that's really cool.
0: Yeah, that's true. And and good mention of, of the fact that she's kind of doing the warrior monk thing and she reaches for her tool because the next thing that happens is Kinsey starts thinking about her tools, about how she can try to solve this problem in the immediacy of the moment, like like solve it right now. Um, and she, she decides, you know, she chooses her tools and that it's going to be the memory cards that she keeps on her person, which store her more secret sensitive memories. And turns out that's going to be the framing device for this interlude chapter, a series of memories from Kenzie's past.
1: Yeah. One of the greatest parts about this chapter to me, going back to, how and why this works so well is that these most impactful moments don't necessarily play as reveals. They're not really like shocking twists moments. They play out more like slow car crashes that you can't turn away from. You see them coming, but you're powerless to stop it. I think it works like this because the book takes time in these early moments of the chapter to specifically and deliberately set those cars in motion this phrase, this phrase, this could be fixed, is repeated three times in quick su- succession at the opening of the story. And it's a very classic three beat in that the first establishes, the second reinforces, and the third kind of reveals our conceit. Because the third time Kenzie says it, she says, this could be fixed, but fixing couldn't happen on its own. And that is essentially Kenzie. Yeah. Not only does she have this compulsion to fix things, but this earnest belief that without her intervention it can't be fixed it can't go right this is her tragic flaw and since we've used a three beat to set it up here we know to expect that going forward it, it it's what leads to moments of dread in the later chapter not just surprise
0: yeah yeah that that's that's one really cool thing that that we can't possibly uh underemphasize or overemphasize, yeah, we can't overemphasize uh would be that that yeah we we know how this all ends up, sort of. Um so so there's no shocking twists, but there are definitely moments of dread, like you said. There are moments of, oh no, oh no, you know, and 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 yet we all know this ends up not fine, uh, but but we know we know certain things happen. We know the general shape of the outcome, but we're not Um, so, so like that's, that's one thing it's got going for us. And another thing, you know, just to mention right up front is we've spent a huge amount of time with this character. We spent seven arcs getting to know this character, uh, via third person and we think we know them. So there's a lot of, um, various kinds of confusion and, and realizations of like, oh shit, that's what was going on back in that scene when Kinsey reacted this way. There's yeah. there's so many layers to what's happening here that isn't just what's happening in the chapter, but but contextualized by what's been set up in the story up to this point.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and it's 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 so revealing to to see how much you actually don't know about someone. Um, and this has been something that that these stories have done again and again, is you really don't know someone until you get inside their head. And it I thought out of out of all the all of the breakthrough Kenzie was someone I felt like I had a pretty good handle on and man, not only is that not true, but a lot of times it's the exact opposite of what you think.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, There's a giant hailstorm right here outside. Um, Anyway. Yeah. So yeah. So um, what's happening in this first memory as we start up these uh, memory recordings is that Kenzie is listening to Cherish's favorite song, Um, as she does her homework in her house uh, before gold morning. Her dad comes in and just generally treats her like crap. Uh, We see that she's actually doing homework she doesn't even need to do, essentially just to keep up appearances. And the text in this part and the subsequent several paragraphs pays particular attention to the physical details of her actions, the meticulousness and perfectionism. Everything is precise, honed by the terror of being caught doing something slightly imperfectly.
1: Yeah. And as much as I love this entire chapter, I think the strongest writing in it is right here uh, near the beginning. Um, And it's exactly for the reasons that you say that that attention to detail is so great. And I think this whole thing is one of the best examples of, of show, not tell you've seen in this whole story, because like we don't ever have to be like very early in the story, even before the events of the dinner, we don't have to be told that these people are abusing this child You can just tell you can just tell not even you don't even need them in the room to be able to tell that they're abusing the child. You can tell solely by the way she is acting.
0: Yeah. And I was Yeah.
1: And I was really tempted to, like, pull this entire section and just read it all like I really I really wanted to. But I, I understand that's rather impractical, Matt. So I just pulled three examples of, of what I think is the best way this stuff is illustrated. Um, the first one is w- when Kenzie's working on her math problems and she says there was safety in numbers. The pencil scratched on paper, finishing another long division problem. So just using this this phrase that we understand safety in numbers and kind of turning it on its head, removing the the classic meaning of it and, and making it literal, um, where she's literally hiding out in her math. I thought it was just this wonderful way, this wonderful image of showing her state of mind right now.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and one thing, I don't know if this was necessarily um, an intentional connotation, but that made me kind of reflect on the fact that uh, now she's, she's got her team. So she does actually have safety in numbers. I don't know if she realizes that, I think yeah. she's the kind of person who's so chronically insecure that she may not, but, but, but I don't know. For some reason, that's what struck me in that moment.
1: I think you're right, and I think maybe we'll talk about that near the end of the episode.
0: Cool. Um, Yeah. So Uh,
1: the the other. Sorry, I have I have two more, Matt. You can't take these away from me. I I limited myself to three. Um, The other one is when her father first walks in the room and there's this moment where she hurried to pull her headphones down, hands wrapped around them with fingers covering the parts where the sound came out. So like this this quick reaction, this quick immediate reaction that goes directly to. Not only just making it so she can hear, but blocking out the sound because God forbid he hears the music that's coming out of the headphones. Maybe it's like, why aren't you listening to classical music, Kenzie? What's wrong with you? Um, I just think that's that's a great little detail there that is is so minor that you could almost miss it. But it's right there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't think I would thought of that. But now that's completely my headcanon.
1: Yeah. And. The last one um, is her going into the, the bathroom, Matt. The bathroom was empty. The coast clear. She closed and locked the door, then got one of the metal metal whisker wicker baskets from the shelf, moving the hand towels inside the edge of the counter before putting the basket upside down on the bathroom floor it worked like a stepping school stool, giving her the height she needed to reach the tops, the taps, which was harder to do since the new counter and sink mom and dad had put in sleeve pushed up, hands thoroughly washed and dried sleeves rolled down. Towels went back in the basket, which was dusted off before it went back on the shelf. I think this, this ties into the, uh, the attention to detail, the meticulousness you were talking about here, how like we, we walk through step by step by step by step, um, every little thing she does. And of course we also have to go to the fact that, she had to make a stepping stool out of a basket cause she can't reach the taps. Cause her parents just did some remodeling. And I think before we've even sat down at the dinner, we're clear here. Like the, the, the usage the coast is clear. She locked the door behind her. She cleans everything so carefully that you're just like, Oh no.
0: Yeah. What's, what's fascinating about the writing here is that at no point Uh, Certainly up to this point, has the text said anything like she did such and such fearfully or she suppressed a a feeling of of dread or any like there's no it's it's all just it's all just like, okay. look at how she's behaving. Look at how she goes through this 15 step process to wash her hands and then return the bathroom to precisely the condition, the condition she left it. You know, the the closest that it comes in, in what you just read was when it said the the coast is clear, implying she was basically looking out for a threat. Um, everything else is just like, yeah, you you just know that she's motivated by terror and and like like self defensive um, uh, uh, kind of like j- just just dread. It doesn't ever have to actually say it though, and, and I think that's yeah. awesome.
1: And and I think there's a certain realness to that as well because while your life has become like one long feeling of dread, um, there's a, there's a, a moment where you kind of get used to it. So like th- this stuff is so routine to her now, like the having, having to be this meticulous and this careful is so routine that it, it might not specifically bring up a, a spike in dread above the, just the, the regular, the, the regular dread amount that she's feeling, you know? Yeah. I think so, right. uh, so I think it's 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 more accurate that like she wouldn't be like super obviously nervous about this because it's always just this level, this, this same level of that.
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And that's just how her psyche has been warped at this point. Yeah, so her mom, she goes down to dinner. Her mom feeds her what is apparently a disgusting overcooked Parmesan chicken dish, which she can't even cut into with her knife. Uh, and because we're in her head, we see that her disgust at this meal is genuine. And her kid taste buds probably just can't handle the rich food, um, or maybe it's actually really bad. But really, how do you fuck up Parmesan chicken?
1: Well, you know how they say that like mom's recipe always tastes better because it's cooked with love. Mm-hmm. This is like the the exact the exact opposite of that. <laughs> um, to me. It's pretty clear that this food is just really fucking gross. I mean, th- they're chastising Kenzie for not being able to cut through the meat, but we also see both of them fail to cut through the meat. Um, And it's just kind of, it's just kind of ridiculous. She made this shitty fucking meal because she doesn't know how to cook very well. And she decided to take it out on Kenzie because she's a horrible, horrible person. And. So so this moment, Matt, and and despite myself, the less like the less good part of me enjoyed that this basically means that one of the first things Kenzie did when she started blackmailing them was make Irene learn how to cook a fucking meal. Yeah. And I I don't like that's terrible. That's what she's doing is bad, but uh, I can be better sometimes.
0: Yeah, I mean. I, I agree that there's there's definitely some black humor there. I don't know if it's intentional or if I'm just a monster, but I, I definitely gleaned some black humor from that particular moment calm. of realization. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the situation escalates uh, through her parents apparently trying to one-up each other at being shitty until Irene smushes Kinsey's face into the plate, breaking the plate and cutting Kenzie's face. Uh, and then they're more concerned about the, food, the, the blood getting on, on the tablecloth than they are about her injury.
1: So Matt, Uh
0: I'm
1: not, I'm not a very, I'm not what you would call a very like emotional reader. Like I get, I get really emotional when I watch movies like a lot, probably too much, but as much as I love books and I, and I really do, it's rare that like sitting down and reading a book causes my emotions to bubble to the surface, to the point where I'm like actually portraying the way that I'm feeling. Um, this is an exception. <laughs> um I was seething throughout this entire this entire bit. I was so ang- I was visibly angry sitting at my computer reading this. And it's it's just it's just I mean, it's so disturbing and and cruel and ugh uh it just makes me so mad.
0: Yeah. And and I think this is the first time we see what's really going on with her parents and I think I don't want to oversimplify or like be reductive but it seems like both of her parents are huge narcissists and that's kind of the main one line way of describing it like they don't care about anyone probably not even each other actually and certainly not Kenzie it's all about Mm -hmm. how things reflect on them and how things appear and yeah by all accounts that screws up kids if your parents are that way so um yeah yeah
1: and and just look at that I mean this 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 emotional manipulation like we've given you everything nice clothes nice food a hairstylist a nice big house and there's no appreciation and like all she was doing is like she didn't like the food and and there's this moment where like she looked to her dad for help and her dad just says listen to your mother and and that just seals the outrage for me it's like she in her desperation Her mom is being a jerk to her. She looks to her other parent for something and he just offers nothing. Fuck, fuck these people.
0: Yeah, right. I I feel like I'm obviously my parents are nothing like this, but I I definitely have like met people who go on these sort of like uh, woe is me monologues that are like (laughs) at the person who's sitting there, but they're not talking to them. Um, Usually people who have like a position of, of power over over their target um it's totally a real thing, and like there's the way the way Irene is behaving like I wish I could say that it was melodramatic and over the top and unbelievable, but like no, I think everyone knows that that's completely how real people can behave when when they have like a captive audience who's at their mercy, sure, yeah, and I think one of the reasons why
1: this is is so impactful is because I mean family dinner is a pretty. I don't want to say universal thing because not everyone gets to sit down at a dinner table and eat with their family, but it is a very relatable thing. It is something that a lot of people do and your kid not eating the food you want your kid to eat is also something that happens a lot of times. Like this is not some this is not like a a rare occasion in the world, but so we're, we're seeing like these, these fairly normal interactions between families and how they are, turned up to a level that just goes too far and i think that i think that's what helps make it land a little bit better
0: yeah yeah i mean just just the complete um psychopathic level of of aggression from her, from yeah. her mom yeah yeah
1: yeah. And and like to reinforce all of this, I think we have them talking about Kenzie like she's not even here. Like like th- th- they seem to want to directly talk to Kenzie as little as possible. Like they're they're talking about her in front of her like, oh, she's bleeding all over the table. What are we going to do with her? And it's just so cruel.
0: Yeah, I think what's may- maybe worth pointing out explicitly is like why this is particularly evil and like the whole thing that they're doing, it's not like when you're trying to cajole your child into eating some food, you know, there, there may be threats, there may be bribes, you know, it, obviously, it doesn't get physical, but it can get, it can get intense. Um, but what you don't do is you don't withhold love and affection from your child as a punishment. And the thing about her parents is that they don't have any love for her and they probably use affection in order to manipulate her, but it's not genuine and she's desperate for it. And so that's actually what motivates her to, you know, go so far in, in her, you know, attempts at self-regulation because she's so desperate for that, for that love and affection that she's not getting at all.
1: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and then of course it, it does go too far when it gets physical though. I mean, and that's, we've like, we kind of build and build and build up to that moment. And and the minute that plate breaks, it's like, Oh, so we're here now. Like yeah. not, not to, not to make the emotional manipulation and emotional abuse that they're performing on her seem less than the physical. But, um, I think, I think this really is a moment of like unquestionably terrible behavior.
0: Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So after this, her parents leave the house together to have an enjoyable time together away from her. Yeah, and and I think
1: what we're there's there's these moments of blatant contradiction, and they're they're seemingly designed to just piss you off, and that's why I think I got so mad because he, freaking Julian. He says, I don't know about you, but her antics in this mess have caused me to thoroughly lose my appetite. And then one sentence later, he says, I'll take you to Screwball. We'll have burgers and a shake like way back when. And it's like, I thought you lost your appetite, yeah. asshole. And I mean, it's just like it, it's. Being,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. It's just being just a d- like. Yeah. Yeah. Like he even says here, voice pitched to be heard. They're doing this j- just so she can hear. And. It's so like, it's like both of them, re- like in the back of their minds, they're probably like, yeah, this food, like, I can't cut it. It's probably pretty bad. Um, right. I'm embarrassed because I messed up. And yeah, uh, and Julian's like, I
0: want to eat this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so he's like, ooh, here's how I can get out of eating the shitty food without <laughs> seeming like the jerk. We can, we can blame the kid and then go get burgers. Yeah. And it's just so, fuck these people.
0: Yeah. They're basically like bullying their daughter and high fiving each other about it. It's yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. And, and you know,
1: what's the worst part about all this to me, Matt, the part what? that breaks your heart, like the part where it goes from, I'm just mad to my heart is broken when they're about to leave. And Julian turns to Kenzie and says, you really could have done better tonight. And her response is the outrage faded to about half of what it had been mixed with confusion, choked guilt, confused, choked guilt. this, is what abuse looks like. This is it. You, you emotionally manipulate people, you physically abuse them and then you make them feel guilty for you having to do it. You you make it their fault. You turn the victim of the abuse into the, the one responsible for it. And it's so disgusting.
0: Yeah. It's, it's like you said, infuriating. Um, yeah. So, Kenzie inadvertently trails blood all over the floor while she's trying to clean up um, or, or while she's going to her room and then she tries to clean up the mess she made with her blood uh, using the towels from the bathroom. And when her parents return, they proceed to freak out about the blood-soaked towels and they drag her out of her room.
1: Yeah, which is, again, infuriating. But I wanted to point something out here that jumped out at me as, as Kenzie cleans. She sees She sees the blood trail and she's kind of grossed out by it, but her response is, she made herself fix it. So with this, Wildbow has intentionally echoed back to the three beat we talked about at the start of the chapter. That, um, and now we have defined where Kenzie's tragic flaw, this impulse, this desire to fix things originated from.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's it's so heartbreaking because, like, when you're a child and you cut yourself or your face gets cut, your parents are supposed to take care of it. When you're a child and you might accidentally drip blood on the carpet, your parents are supposed to take care of it for you. When you're a child and you can't reach the fucking sink because it's too tall, your parents are supposed to buy you a fucking footstool. Yeah, but not Kenzie for Kenzie. If she doesn't find a way to stop the bleeding, if she doesn't find a way to clean up the blood, if she doesn't construct her own step stool to reach a sink, no one else is going to do it. If she doesn't fix it, nobody else will.
0: Yeah. Not only will no one else fix it, but she'll get yelled at Blamed, for not yeah. doing anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then and, and she'll probably get yelled at even if she does do something about it. But at least then she has a sense of control, I suppose.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: So now we cut back to the present day with Kinsey and Victoria having watched the memory of the chicken dinner and uh, uh basically kenzie is telling victoria um what the team knows and she says they know what my parents were like they haven't seen these diary dioramas or the first but i've told them the stories ashley started being nice to me after i did i did tell them that things are better now because i have powers and my parents are scared which i guess is true mm-hmm. so
1: thank god we now know that they didn't all know about about what she's doing to them, right?
0: Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that makes me feel a little bit better. But of course, we also see here ha- Ashley's connection to Kenzie. Why? Why she feels so connected to this person? Why they feel? Um, they they went through a lot of the same stuff. Ashley was abused as a kid, and so is Kenzie. So she sees a kindred spirit in her.
0: Yeah, yeah. It reminds me that when you know we didn't see what Kenzie told them back back in that chapter, but we saw the immediate aftermath and Kenzie like smiling like crazy as she told the story. Um And yeah, and yeah. Damsel reacting to that and uh, kind of understanding, I think. So, yeah,
1: that's true. That's true. Yep. Yeah. So I, I want to talk a bit about the framing device here because we, we have, we have drawn our frame of the chapter in a very specific way. Um We are sitting in present day with Vic, Victoria and Kenzie, and then she's playing, the memories and we're, we're basically jumping into them. And as people pointed out to me uh, on Twitter, when I was doing my live read, we're not just like watching the 3d construction of the memory with the characters, because we are in Kenzie's head in these things We we are jumping into her head. We are hearing what she thinks and, and how she's processing these, these things. And I think that's very interesting because we took the time last chapter to specifically outline the fact that when creating these 3D models of her memories, Kenzie often uh, tweaks them and changes things. And, and and it's kind of her way of experimenting with how would this have gone different if I did this? How would this have um, how would this have happened if I said this instead? So so this this means that the door is certainly still open to the idea that what Kenzie is showing Victoria isn't the whole truth or the entire truth. And, and we have to acknowledge that, you know, this thing we've said over and over again on the show, that memory is distorted by our perception. So even if it's, this is the truth, as Kenzie remembers it, it's probably not 100, 100, 100 percent accurate. But I don't I don't get the feeling that that's some, something we're setting up here. I don't get the feeling that we're we're specifically setting up this idea that Kenzie is is now being dishonest or Kenzie is um, has manipulated these memories to make it look like she was innocent and it was everyone else doing bad things, especially as we move into the further things that she does. Um, but I think it's just very interesting that that we took the time to set that up and now we're, we're exploring it in a different kind of way.
0: Yeah, I feel like if we had seen these scenes from Victoria's point of view, then there would be that element of suspicion. But I think the fact that Wildbo intentionally chose to tell these from a Kinsey interlude Kind of is pretty strong evidence that these are vertical you know memories of what happened
1: right so. i think I think you're right,
0: yeah, so uh yeah, so next, Kenzie proceeds to take off her hairpin that she always wears, which removes the illusion that hides the one inch long scar on her cheek from where the plate cut her,
1: yeah, and that's just heartbreaking, um. We've kind of like I think the the second I learned about the fact that she is able to and, and has in the past projected images on her face. Um, I've been waiting for some kind of reveal related to that. Uh, of course, that you because we're kind of primed by the whole Jessica thing and, and by by Victoria, like seeking out which is the person with the most problems. um I assumed that this projection of her face thing was going to be to hide exhaustion or to hide the fact that she hasn't been eating or not taking care of herself. Just indications that she's falling back into old habits. But the reality is, is so much more upsetting.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and it's also a lot more revealing about her style of uh, dishonesty and deception because she's, She's continually. There have been a few moments in the story where she's basically lied about, like, oh no, I'm not. I'm not doing anything to hide my appearance. I'm not. And you know, she'll she'll say that while like looking over her shoulder so Victoria can't see her face. Or um, I don't remember exactly what she says when her when her tech glitches when they go through the security system at the warden's headquarters. But once again, she says something that's probably like literally true, you know, if you take it at face value, but misleading and it just indicates yeah like so much of what Kenzie's, Kenzie's told us that victoria has believed has been a lie or or a deception it's not an outright lie
1: yeah and it's so, so it's so funny how she does that though that she like the w- the way she uses the truth and lies is not like a lot of people just lie directly and she she very rarely does that
0: yeah yeah because she she likes to think of herself as honest yeah. But she also wants to hide things. And and I think <laughs> and most importantly, she wants to keep things under control. And right. And. Yeah. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's what's I think that's fascinating, actually, that she she really desperately needs to control things, but also doesn't want to lie.
1: Yeah. The lies come only when she feels like the truth will hurt something. And yeah. which is I mean, which is when most people lie. But she 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 does it in these kind of like. Batman begins, um, technicality type things a lot of the times. Like I think when, when Victoria calls her out on the, the, um, the face protection, she was like, well, I was facing the other way. So you couldn't see it. So technically, technically true.
0: Yeah. Right. Darth Vader killed your father from a certain point of view. (laughs) Um, so the next scene is a vignette from school. The next day, I suppose the other kids are being mean to her because he's just Socially off enough to be a pariah and the other kids are asking about the bandage on her face and she tries to joke with them about it, but Isn't really successful at that. And then when the teacher asks her about it She can't muster up a good lie and she breaks down
1: Can I can I just say the kids are the fucking worst? Yes, like they're the worst they are. I, I know we've all been there and I know we've all probably been mean to some people in school when we were young Um, I was usually on the receiving end of it more than the giving, but I'm not going to pretend that I was never mean as a kid, but damn, it's just like, it's just like, no, be nice to each other. There's no reason to be mean. Yeah. You're, you're children. None of this, none of this, none of this social stuff is that important. Yeah. No one cares if the third grader thinks you look cool for being mean to the other person.
0: You know, you wish you could tell them these things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's something I really wanted to highlight here though that I think is just it's just brilliant. You, you throughout this chapter we've been calling Kenzie Kenzie um, and and the text has for the most part too um, but but in, in in every one of the memory flashbacks she's been Kanzi that that was her name and and the narration reflected that her parents reflected that. But look at this one event because she this little girl walks up to her and she says Kenzie right? And and the text, in the text, in the narration, Kenzie nodded. So someone gets Kanzi's name wrong. Kenzie nods, even though it's wrong. She she accepts it and says, yeah. And the text of the story morphs around that wrongness and the narration (laughs) changes it. And, And Kenzie is so desperate to make this girl happy, to be liked, that she simply becomes the person that they think she is. And the book like adapts to it. And
0: I didn't, I didn't notice that. And that's, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. And, and and this continues on for a little bit, a little bit more of her conversation. Um, She's talking about the bear that mauled her face. And this girl doesn't believe her. And she says, there aren't any bears in the city though. Exactly. Kenzie said the little girl looked confused. She turned to go report to the others. And then we have Liz. Kanzi said, I really like your hair. So then in this moment, as the girl is turning away to report back to her friends, she she goes back to being Kanzi again and she reaches out for a, a moment of real connection. This is something coming from not the person she thinks you want to be, but a, a person, a genuine nice girl who just wants to tell you that your hair looks good. And and then that gets, she gets rejected. She gets made fun of more for that. And it's just so tragic and I yeah. love how we use her name the shift in her name to reflect this
0: yeah I think the saddest part about that whole thing for me is how after the girl rejects her nice comment she's not at all like surprised by that she's just like yeah that's yeah. what I expected yeah um, so she again she's told her teacher something and then we cut you know forward in time Uh, She's been telling the cops what's been going on, and uh, she's having an interaction with Aerobat, a hero, and and he's doing one of those interventions with her like Victoria did at the hospital early in the book. And this ends with him giving her his card, which will come up later.
1: This is the beginning of what I like to call the sweet and hopeful portion of the chapter, where you get to pretend like you don't already know pretty much exactly how the story is going to end and just assume that Kenzie is going to be absolutely fine now. Yeah. I I'm playing this up a little bit. But but Matt, this is this is more or less what I did when I was reading this for the first time. I think it's a testament to the quality of the writing that you kind of lose yourself in it momentarily and forget that we know how this ends.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I think you're right. Um yeah, so from here we skip to Kinsey meeting the men who are going to be her foster parents, Keith and Antonio. And it's kind of funny how Kenzie doesn't really quite get that her parents are in fucking prison now. Um, but she does begin to believe that maybe she won't have to see her parents for a long time. And that brings a fluttery feeling of relief, um, which may be one of the first positive emotions we've seen from her.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it, it, I think this is really good because I think this is a very kind of childish thing where, um, especially especially in in a child abuse case where the kid might not fully understand that what the, her parents were doing to her was wrong. I mean, like she knows how it makes her feel and she knows how it makes her scared and, and worried and cautious all the time. But like if, if you grew up in this and this is all you ever knew, do you know that like, Hey, you're not supposed to do that to people. And if you do that to people, you get punished for it. And that that's like a foreign concept for these poor kids that go through this thing. And that's, that's kind of what that felt like to me. It's like, um, my parents just maybe they just got in a little trouble and, and I'm going to be back with them. Cause of course I am like, it, it's, it, there's a little bit of hopelessness to it as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think she said something like, yeah, they'll get a ticket or something. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah man i i love keith and antonio though um yeah well we're gonna have a lot more to say about them in a bit but i'm i was immediately super into this wonderful couple like deciding to foster kids like it's it's great
0: yeah this is one of those things i want to study forever like how how wild Bo <laughs> characterizes and makes you love these guys and you know really very few words focusing on them specifically i think it's Just a, i think it's a few scenes
1: yeah it's just the moments of like genuine affection between them and then this mood tracker that we're about to get,
0: yeah, 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 so they introduce her to this mood tracker that's like on the fridge, which is a way that she can communicate her feelings, uh which is really important because she's chronically suppressed her feelings
1: yeah i i really I really like this, I think it's a really perfect way to to clearly outline the differences between her former parents and these new ones that, that, that they, they are genuinely concerned about what she's thinking and how she's feeling. And, and this is something that's so new to her. Um, there was, there was a beat here where I was worried that Kenzie would like this, this entrance into the foster system would like continue this, this quicksand of abuse where she's just going to keep like, it's going to keep happening. But, this moment with the mood tracker cemented this idea that, okay, no, like, if something's going to go wrong here, it hopefully will not be because of the people she's with.
0: Right. Yeah. I, and I, th- I think you're right. And I'm so, like, with this next thing, I'm definitely not trying to, like, come down hard on Keith and Antonio, but uh, because this is the sort of thing where it's like, how could you possibly know that this was a minefield? Um, but so th- they're preparing food together, and Kinsey is not reacting quite the way you know she should be if she's having a good time but neither is she really expressing her anxiety in a normal way so um uh you know because she has these bad associations with mealtimes at home um and and then they ask her to use the mood tracker She, she communicates her anxiety and then she immediately feels that her communicating this has made them pull away because they, they kind of look at each other apprehensively like, you know, oh, we're, you know, she's upset by this. That, that's that's not good. Um, and then they try to soothe her and let her assemble like a chocolate pizza, uh, which makes her feel better, but not like all the way better because she kind of it, nothing makes her more anxious than this idea that they're going to pull away from her. Um, but still, she decides to put up a smiley face on the chart, faking feeling better, which is what she was doing anyway and then noting that the men are happy to see that she did this and feel like they succeeded. So all she's learned from this is that she should lie on the mood chart as well as with her face.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. And and I think <laughs> I don't want, like, I don't think that Antonio or Keith did anything wrong here. I think I think they were saddled with a case that is so difficult and I mean like we've seen Kenzie throughout her entire life no one has really been able to help her in any kind of way so they were like already out of their league from the beginning so I mean that's that's honestly to me the scariest part about parenting when you're doing something that feels completely right but you don't you don't know the things and how they will affect children children like how could you know that like being happy when your kid says she's happy is actually just reinforcing the idea that you should always show them that you're happy and never when you're sad and it's just like, Oh God, Oh God, how do I, how do I prevent that from happening?
0: Right. Yeah. Especially Kinsey. I mean, we've, we've been in Victoria's head for this whole story and Victoria is literally only now understanding what Keith and Antonia would have had to understand to have navigated this. Right. And even then it would be, it would be difficult to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I think you could, you could easily like morph this into a way where it's, it's all their fault and they, they didn't handle this girl. Right. But I, I don't, I don't think we should want to do that. Um, yeah. that doesn't seem to be what the text wants us to do.
0: Yeah. I see no need to do that. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, we skip ahead Kenzie is in bed and Keith has fallen asleep next to her while reading to her. And
1: this is where she declares that she no longer wants to be called Kanzi. This is where she says, I'm going to be Kenzie now. And there's a certain um, understanding to that, that. Kanzi is associated with this old life. Kenzie is associated with this new one. And so it makes a it makes a kind of sense that like we talked a lot about names and the meaning and power of names last week and how she's she's wanting to take her agency back by by renaming herself. And so I was thinking about this and I was thinking about how the fact that she changed look see to look out Matt, which is she changed from Conzi to Kenzie because people kept saying Kenzie and she's so concerned about people liking her that she doesn't want, she doesn't feel like she like wants to correct them. So she just said, I'm just going to go with it. And then she kind of does a very similar thing with lookout where this is a name that Chris really liked a lot. He thought it was really funny. And so she's changing her name. She's changing her identity to appease someone else.
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I I think you, I think you pointed that out at the time, actually, that it seemed like she was making that choice because Chris needed to be cheered up in that moment, which is not a I don't know, not not a particularly great, like long term strategy for choosing your hero name.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just like it's just this like putting your putting your relationships with everyone else above any sense of self that you have. Yeah, exactly. It's something she tends to do. And this, like this, this imagery we leave this part with, like this, this wonderful moment where she's like, she's fallen asleep with her new father, and like they're they're bonding and things are going great, and she she calls this love uneasy tentative like a baby horse taking its wobbly first steps gradually getting better at it and the fear she's feeling in this moment was like someone had a big fat crayon inside her scribbling madly defying the lines the color was supposed to go inside except it wasn't color just black and i love this imagery of this this Perfectly serene, happy moment where anyone else you this would be the the end of a great story where she was abused by her parents and, and found love somewhere else. And now everything's going to be OK. But but to Kenzie, no, because the better things are, the more terrified she is of losing them. Yeah.
0: Which relates us a lot back to Ashley with her, like the the better, the, the more in control, the, the more henchmen she had. more successful it seemed like she was being the more she kind of felt like she needed to be reckless and and bold and yeah um and and she felt like basically there's further to fall and didn't it didn't make her feel any better or any more secure
1: yeah you're right yeah
0: yeah and i love the the visual you know the the metaphor
1: oh yeah it's so good and and it's like it's 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 good because it's a well constructed metaphor, but it's also a realistically childish metaphor. Like the the use of crayon coloring outside the lines. Um, it, it's it's great imagery, but also makes sense as coming from the mind of a nine year old girl.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then as this as this video entry, this diorama wraps up, the text returns to Victoria. Victoria paste. He doesn't have a face," Victoria remarked, um, and then Kennedy says that it's because he asked her not to.
1: Yeah. So now it's, the cars. The cars are getting closer to each other. Matt, yeah. the car crash is coming, um, and and we see that now we see something bad's going to happen here. So bad that he he has asked to be his face to be stripped from all of these, and she yeah. has loved and respected him enough to do it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a tiny bit of a silver lining. The other silver lining is that he we learn from that that he lived through whatever she's about to do to him.
1: Yeah, that's true. He's still alive. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. yeah that's
1: you're just grasping for that silver lining there, Matt. <laughs> well, he's yep. alive. There we I've go. Been,
0: I've been trained by these stories. <laughs> I take what I can get. They had a few moments of happiness together, so, you know.
1: That's like in the story. world of parahumans. That's like... Yeah. Winning the lottery.
0: Yeah, exactly. Later, she overhears them talking about adopting her, and she decides that she needs to do something to make this happen. So she talks to an older teenager and gets him to install an un- unblocked browser on her phone. Uh, but she uses it to search, and she uses it to search for how do I show someone I love them.
1: And that's when you just start going, oh no, 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 no. no, no. Yep.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I said it, later, I think this is probably actually earlier because I think that, yeah, I think the chronology is a bit out of Oregon here, on purpose. Hmm. Anyway. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, I mean, the, one of the thing that I think jumps out at me here is poor need to fix everything. Kenzie is actually super resourceful. like, so it's not only does she have this compulsion to fix everything, but she finds a way to do it. Like a nine year old girl finds like comes up with a plan to talk to this older kid, to unlock her phone, to figure this stuff out. And she just does it. And this is, I mean, this is pre Cape. This is before she has her tinker powers, but she just has a a way of getting the information she needs to fix things. And it's the worst thing ever. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I I liked that particular touch and it, you know in anticipation of knowing what her power is going to be because it's not unrealistic. It's a very realistic thing for a kid to try to do is is to try yeah. to circumvent the restrictions that are being placed on them. That's the counter-surveillance aspect and to try to then use exactly that same trick to keep track of someone who they want to keep track of, you know, it's it's just resourcefulness and sort of that like desperate aggressiveness that yeah is what motivates her (sighs) here we go and she reminds us at this point that she was nine at the time and is really oblivious to uh you know the meaning of the things that she's reading when she does this uh, internet search which is so sad
1: yeah and you know i'm just never um if i have kids they're just never getting a smartphone that's just i mean ever ever good it's dangerous No smartphone, yeah. no internet is bad. It's bad.
0: Internet, no. The internet computers. was a mistake. Yep, just wind the clock back. So what she does freaks out Antonio, uh, understandably, and Keith tells her that they'll talk to a professional about it. Uh, Antonio then pulls away from her, and in reaction, she installs a child tracking app on his phone so she can monitor what he's doing and where he is, and also keep tabs on their communications. She reads the resources that they're looking into and then she talks to the social worker, um, sort of parroting a lot of what she thinks she's supposed to say from reading those resources, which causes the social worker to believe that she's been coached because her answers are too pat.
1: Yep, got to fix it. And when your fix makes things worse, well, you got to fix that too. And then if that – you got to fix that and then, and then you got to fix that until suddenly Victoria doesn't look so much like a person and instead kind of looks like a blob of – wait – Wait what? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I kid, I kid, but I mean, we've talked about how Victoria, as our protagonist, the the issues and the things she's going through, and the issues with the people she's going through, are reflected in a lot of the the people on her team, and. This this is one of them that jumped out at me that this this idea that um you you go down a path of trying to make things better and trying to fix things and when when things start to go wrong you panic and dig deeper and and just make it worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and that's kind of what happened with Amy in the end and there's there's some parallels here.
0: Yeah no that's that's amazing yeah I I, uh, I definitely didn't didn't notice that but yeah the desperate. The desperate uh, uh, clawing at something and only making things worse. Yeah, I agree. Um,
1: and then and then the, the saddest part about all this is Kenzie is conscious of it. She's aware. She knows. She has this sentence as we, we move on to the next part where she says, that's my thing. That's me. Anyone else, they like someone and that, then they have this stopper inside them. They think, oh, they love this person. They love them a lot. So they'll do this thing and that thing and give them this gift and bam, that's enough. Bam but that's not me. When I love people it overflows and it makes a heck of a mess. I don't know where to stop things. And when things start slipping away, I reach out harder. So it's this it's this wonderful tragic thing where this this girl's 11 years old and she understands. She understands what she does and it's just a compulsion and it's something she has very hard time controlling it because even if she understands in retrospect that that's what I've done in the moment it doesn't feel like she's doing that it doesn't feel like I'm 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 going too far I I don't know when to stop things and that's the real tragedy of it that she knows but even even knowing is not enough to stop it
0: yeah one interesting thing about this interlude is we spend most of it in her head in the past and she says that she's gotten a lot better and Despite the fact that she stretches the truth sometimes, she probably does believe she's gotten a lot better and she probably has gotten a lot better, but uh, we don't see a lot of the better in this interlude. And, and that's simply because we're mostly yeah. in the past. Um, right. And like, and it's, yeah.
1: I mean, there's a certain amount of irony of talking about how much better you've gotten when you're blackmailing your parents.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, right. Like, I, I think that's a great point. She probably hasn't gotten as, as much better as she things she does however this self-awareness that you were pointing out i think that is a part of her being a a bit better that she's able to articulate what it is that she does and uh and by the end of this chapter there are signs that she is is consciously resisting the pull of it yeah so so let's get there uh, unlike that in the past uh in desperation she she shows up at keith's work and tries to confront him there and ask him what's going on, which freaks him out even more. And he asks someone else to take her away and it says, she watched him leave the room and she saw the look in his eyes. He was gone. She might see him again or talk to him again. She could get every detail, read every instant message, see every webpage he visited, that he would never be her dad again. Every point of light in the room flared, a kaleidoscope, a lens flare across her field of vision. Even the edges of the desks where the sunlight drew highlights on glossy black finish became impossibly bright. And that's the saddest uh, trigger event in the world.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, geez, like he yeah, would never yeah. be her dad again it is yeah. so heartbreaking.
0: I know. I I I had trouble reading that. Yeah. Um it it uh it almost seems crass to point it out in this context, but this is a really unusual trigger vision also probably full of all kinds of clues that I'm not getting.
1: Yeah. I mean, we go to this land where up is down and down is up and there's glass and machinery everywhere. And it seems to be like normal worm trigger visions. Um, We saw the entities and we saw like them going on their the beginning their cycle. And that's what we saw. But this appears to be possibly like the planet that her power came from. Like, um so I don't know what this says about her shard in particular and how it's different from the other ones um but that is that is very interesting
0: yeah it, it just makes me curious. I don't really have much more to say it's just uh, no, it, it's we don't, cool that we't getting it a lot of a lot of this interesting stuff that's very yeah. enticing
1: it at least points out that i mean either either the death of of the entities has changed how what vision you see or perhaps her shard is. Unique in some way.
0: Yeah, I, so so her trigger was pre gold morning anyway, right? So yeah, um, it was. It's got to be. It's got to be just something weird. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not even going to conjecture at this point. It's it's definitely definitely uh, caught my attention though. So yeah, she calls Arabat uh, when she gets to her her new foster home uh, when she gets back to her new foster home. And she thinks to herself, "Before I use this power to do something, I regret even more," um, which I think is a good moment of actual potential growth, perhaps.
1: Yeah, because she I never mean, used her powers. power wrong. She never yeah. used her power wrong from then on, and everyone lived happily ever after. The end.
0: Yeah, your good point. <laughs> <laughs> um, <Perhaps not>. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I do think I do think that is an interesting uh, has an interesting wrinkle in Kenzie where you're right that in this moment she gets this power and her immediate reaction is I need, I need help with this or I'm going to do something I regret. And I think that, that, that goes back to the two kind of a, I don't want to say a natural goodness in her cause that I don't, but, but like some, some inherent quality to her that even as she's making these mistakes and doing these, these terrible things, um, she, she has these compulsions but she doesn't want to you know yeah i think there's there's something to be admired in that i think
0: yeah yeah the self-awareness and i i mean i think i think maybe everyone can relate to having a bit of compulsiveness or obsessiveness at some point or another in, in their lives about certain things and i think it's very easy to relate to um the the idea of like knowing that you need to stop doing something and not being able to i think i think that's And and, yeah, yeah, so it's just easy to connect to that.
1: Also, like reading people's text messages is like super fascinating. So I get it, (laughs) Kenzie. I get it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like if that temptation is there and and you have this problem, then good luck with that.
1: I know, I know. But we also get in this moment that she she reveals why she smiles all the time. Mm -hmm. She says I always smile when I'm upset or bothered. That's just how I am. It's easier than crying. It doesn't bother people as much. What do you do when you're happy? I don't smile, I guess. Which is a good way of confirming that, like, because if we didn't have that last line in there, it would be like, well, is this a smile, a nervous smile or a happy smile? Now we kind of, we're kind of explicitly instructing that smile equals bad (laughs) for Kenzie. Yeah,
0: right. And moments like when... They all agreed that they should stick together as a team to follow up on the uh, on the the portal bomb maker mystery. And she yeah. just kind of like stares fixedly and intensely. Yeah. Uh, that means she's super happy.
1: <laughs> yeah. That thing that read is super ominous. No, she's yeah. just in a great mood.
0: Yeah. Which is super ominous.
1: Yes. So. <laughs> I mean, it still is. Yes. Yeah, but
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, more, more of her thinking about this. If she could just explain her side, Victoria would see, and then, then things could go back to normal. Just like going to Keith at work had been the way to show him he, she cared to reconnect and then have things be like they used to be. Or s- how just, how saying just the right things to the therapist would make that whole incident go away. Kenzie smiled. So, Am I being overly optimistic by reading this section as Kenzie going, yeah, right, Kenzie, of course, you're not going to make this go back to normal. You need to let go of this stranglehold and let things play out, uh, especially, you know, the smile uh, in- indicating that she she is not happy uh, about her train of thought here. Um, I mean, she she uh, right. I mean, she's she's clearly like being sarcastic here, right?
1: Y- yeah, I mean, OK. I I I read this as kind of hopeful as well. Like this this recognition that this thing that I feel I that I feel like I need to do is the exact thing that's going to get me in trouble. And we we've we talked about how she had this recognition, but usually it was always after the fact. Like she realized after the fact that she's gone too far. And this seems to mm-hmm. indicate to me that maybe she's coming to recognize. When she's about to go too far, when she's going to push, when she's going to keep pushing, keep fixing, fixing, fixing. And she's at least realized here that, oh, wait, this is like that other time. This is like that other time. I thought these same things at these times. So I pushed and pushed and pushed and look what happened. Maybe this is hopeful. Maybe we we're getting her to a place where she's going to be okay. once we, you know, take care of that whole blackmailing your parents thing. Just, just got to get through that.
0: we'll sort that out. No big deal. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Right. Um, So, and then she continues. She says, uh, Kinsey cut in. I know what you're going to say. Really, truly, it's not that bad. I showed them the recordings and I told them they could go to jail or they could live with me and follow my very fair, very sane rules. They can quit at any time. If I die and it looks suspicious, the recordings get released and their lives are over. Um, Which... (laughs) (laughs) It's more more like black humor, I think. Um because she she's trying to like she's trying to realize that this isn't gonna work, but she's also still trying to make it work. That she's kind of at war with herself. And Victoria's like, no, 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 no. Um but Victoria doesn't fly away and, and run for her life. She sticks by her, she tells her they're going to get her out of the house. Victoria offers a hug but Kenzie says no because Kenzie doesn't hug friends because that threatens the cross boundaries. Uh which is
1: really tragic, but yeah, don't I I, I loved Victoria in this moment. Like she's she's learned all this ter- she learned she's doing these terrifying things. She's seen the the reason for it, the cause of it, and she decides, "No, we're going to help you. I'm gonna, I'm going to help you with this. We're going to we're going to do this." I'm gonna get you out of here, um, and things are things are gonna be okay. We're gonna find a way to make this okay, and that's like that's that's kind of what Kenzie needs. And like again, I don't I don't want to fault Keith or Antonio for what they did because I think like after a girl does something like that to you, and you're so like weirded out and concerned about what it means for for. your future and, and the kid's future and all you're concerned about all these things is kind of natural to back off and back away. Um, but in this moment, Victoria doesn't do that. And maybe that's, maybe that's the trick. Maybe like finding a person who is able to stay there no matter what to stick with her throughout all this stuff. And, and not just, not just like, like, not just let her do whatever she wants, but stay with her, but, but check her. I mean, that's, that's what Ashley does to her. Ashley is a person that understands that being around people is important and not being left behind is so important for her, but that doesn't mean she can't check her when she's going too far. And I, I I think, I think this team and the people and a lot of the people on this team are what Kenzie needs. And I I can't believe I'm saying that because like, this was such a bad (laughs) idea at first, but man it's so it's so encouraging to me at the, at the end of this really tragic story there's hope, and that's Ward. Yeah, I mean, there's hope there's hope
0: yeah yeah i mean as as sad as this interlude was, it ends with Victoria staying with her despite seeing this horrible thing, which no one else has seen. Uh, Kinsey probably had reason to believe that the others would just run away if they found out about this and and then Ashley you know she calls Ashley and Ashley's another person who She who gets her, you know, it says it says (laughs) Ashley picked up on the other end. How bad was it? A goofy, (laughs) a goofy grin crept across Kenzie's face and she couldn't wipe it away or get rid of that. She couldn't wipe away or get rid of for what felt like minutes. And yeah, this is, of course, her breaking down and crying, except she doesn't do that. So it's. Yeah. But I mean,
1: but yeah, like. This idea, like. I think unconditional love is a thing that we take for granted. A lot of times like that, that our family or our parents have this, have this innate love for us that even if we do screwed up things, um, we won't lose it. And that's never been the case for Kenzie that she, she's never had that. So what we can see, what we can do in this moment is have Ashley being this person that just loves her no matter what. and, if Victoria and Ashley can be this for Kenzie, that's the road to recovery. And and I hope I hope that if, if we might not hear this direct conversation, but I hope the thing that comes from this is she needs us more than ever right now. And we mm-hmm. we cannot back off. We cannot pull away. We have to be right there. We have to show her that, it, that no matter what she has done, no matter how terrible blackmailing your parents is. And it is even if those are awful people, which they are doing what she did to them is wrong and she shouldn't do that. But that doesn't mean we're going to abandon you. That doesn't mean we're not going to love you anymore. That doesn't mean we're going to leave you alone or, or treat you badly. And that's so important. And I'm so hopeful that that's, that's going to happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah, me too. But, except for,
1: uh, except for this whole other chapter we have to deal with that seems to chapter, think that it's going to get worse before it gets better.
0: Yeah. With us, with an implication that it may not be the, the greatest um. Yeah, so that was that. That was great. Let's move on. Chapter 7, about right. why. Gary Neves. And yeah, so we return to Gary Neves, failed politician, kind of a good guy, kind of a dick, I guess. I, I I would call him a guy who wants the best for people, but doesn't have a lot of self-awareness and gets easily swept up in emotions. I would say that
1: is an entirely fair read on, on Gary Neves. And... The, the most simplest way to describe a, a, what I think is a pretty complicated character.
0: Yeah. So Neves is trying to manage a convoy of refugees coming through the portal from that. Much of his thinking focuses on logistical challenges, the lack of effective leadership, the disorganization and lack of communication between the groups who are nominally on the same side, focusing on uh, a lot on the parahuman hero groups specifically and how they're not, you know, in his mind working together properly. His distaste for the parahumans comes through in the prose, I think. He specifically notes the shepherds having meetings and making decisions without consulting him or any of the other mundanes, and uh his his thinking really kind of lingers on them.
1: Yeah. Um the thing that I find the most interesting about his his particular brand of parahuman bigotry is that it's pretty hidden, at least at the start. Um I think Gary does not walk around saying, I hate parahumans, just like I think most racists don't walk around saying, I hate these people or I hate these people. Instead, it's more just that every observation of them, every interaction with them is just kind of colored or skewed by that hatred. And the first parahuman we see... Reinforces that because here's how Gary describes him. He says the parahuman who managed the robot stood atop the thing, waving at someone on the ground as if he didn't have a care in the world Now this is like a very subtle, but notice how Gary frames that conversation he He opens this chapter talking about how he's trying to save the world, but he's losing how how they're trying to bring as many people over here as possible, but there are still twenty million people on the other side and and they're just not working fast enough, and these people are are dying and starving. And he's tired and overwhelmed and, and he just doesn't think he can do it. And here's this cape, this cape just sitting here without a care in the world. And of course, Gary doesn't actually know that he doesn't have a care in the world. And since we uh we know parahumans pretty well at this point, fellow readers, we're pretty confident that he does have a lot of cares in the world. Um, But but his perception of that just just paints this picture of this person that doesn't care about any of this. And there's nothing there. It's just Gary being a bigot.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of uh, interesting projection that Gary does. Like projecting this, like, oh, this, that guy sitting up there, asshole. Like, it's like the guy's just, the guy's helping. He's fucking helping. Like, what, what are you complaining about?
1: Right. And this and then when when he mentions that everyone's looking at the capes and, and he's he's outlining the reasons, this is very fascinating because he's let, the the kids are looking because the costumes were brightly colored personalities standing out in bold relief. Men looked because they worried like Gary did or he assumed because their eyes were drawn to the young ladies in dresses that showed bare legs and left no illusion about chest side. Test size women. He had no idea why women stared. Probably the same thing. And this is a lot of projection. It's like yeah. the only reason men are looking at these things, because look at those hot women and women. I don't know. Probably the same thing. I don't yeah. know.
0: Right. It's it's impossible that people would be staring at capes because they're cool yeah. or, or or like powerful. And yeah, and <laughs> it's 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 interesting and novel. And you don't get to see capes very often. And they're kind of like celebrities. None of these things occur to him, even though they're like probably fairly natural explanations. I mean, I, I get that people are more scared than awed by capes kind of at this period in time. But still, the world they grew up in, capes were celebrities and you're seeing celebrities. It's yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean, it, it's again, it's great projection because the te- the text is just saying his thoughts and you're like. What?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think my little reaction here, I wrote down in our notes, what the fuck Gary, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, right. What is this? Um, he's also yeah. mean to Ratcatcher, which is like, fuck that guy. Yeah. Right. This is actually, I think the, the, the specific ripping of rat catcher is something that I think is very, it, it gets back to this idea of serialized storytelling. Um, rat catcher is a character who the, the fan community has liked quite a bit. So, when you're constructing this character that you want to both show how he's a good person, but also in areas that he isn't, having him specifically be mean to this kind of fan favorite character is a really simple way to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a good point. Yeah. But everybody, everybody loves Ratcatcher.
1: Here's the thing, Matt. Here's the thing about our bigot Gary. Mm-hmm. He's not entirely wrong about stuff because. Yeah. the the shepherds did have meetings and they did make calls without consulting any of the other people. And capes do so often kind of ignore or dismiss the very people they're working to help. And I don't think they all have like malicious intent behind that, but it is something that happens. And I think that's one of the things that I, I like so much about this chapter is that, um, while we are, showing how much of a kind of scumbaggy person there is. We're also on the other side showing eh, maybe he's got some points.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, this part wouldn't work at all if he was just completely stupid and didn't have any points, right? Like like the, the, this, this story only works if it makes sense for you to be scared of parahumans. And parahumans are terrifying. Like the entirety of Worm and, and Ward are basically just a litany of how parahumans are terrifying. So yeah. it's very understandable. Um, and yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, it, it, it doesn't help though that he has people who are like goading him on basically because this whole time him and his friend and perhaps Minty Heather commiserate in, in like the long suffering way known to all people working together in the trenches under a bureaucracy and they basically just shit talk anybody who isn't present. Um, you can, can kind of like you kind of can't even blame them. I mean, it's it's a very relatable situation um, to be in, you know. But also, objectively, probably not helpful. Uh, the stress of the situation gives him an acid taste in his mouth. Uh, according to him, this is a psychosomatic echo of the ulcers that he suffered in his youth.
1: Yeah, that's a really great tangible beat to kind of the the acidic taste. I like that imagery a lot. And, it, and this is certainly relatable. Um, bitching about your coworkers is like a thing that everyone does. Um, and I like that we can see Gary has this kind of immediate respect for Heather as this person that's only that the only person that's unreservedly in his corner. But I think once again, we're kind of very cleverly and subtly reinforcing his severe bias against parahumans because He's complaining about how there's no communication and the shepherds just just do what they say and they don't talk to any of us. And Heather says, yeah, also like John, John Druck and Mortari and the organizers on the far side, far side and earth bet, like saying, yeah, everyone's being bad at communication, everyone. And Gary, like kind of literally just ignores that, like she even gets cut off mid sentence. And it's not like she stops talking. It's almost as if he just like. Oh, you're not reinforcing my hate of parahumans. Well, I'm just gonna move on to some other thought then.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wanted to rant about parahumans specifically, right?
1: Now. Yeah, yeah. You're. It, it can't be everyone. It just has to be these people because I don't like them.
0: Yeah. So after kind of setting up the situation and logistical problems and the fact that he doesn't like the parahumans who are helping, uh, the uh, he, he sends Heather on an errand and then the generators die. He calmly takes leadership of the situation, uh, though he's even more stressed out. Obviously, Ratcatcher is the only pair human in the vicinity, and she offers to help. Although, interestingly, she says, "Like, even though I'm on my break," which, from Neve's point of view, comes off as like condescending, ex- extremely yeah. condescending. Um, and he learns that there are about twice as many people coming through on the convoy than they're prepared for.
1: Yeah, and I like we we do see again. Gary is a pretty good leader and his leadership qualities kind of kick into effect here. And he's he's immediately organizing people and trying to control things. And and I love how he describes the people rushing to the light of his laptop as moths to a flame and and cavemen to the shelter of a campfire. I think that that is a pretty illustrative of how he views people as well. Like he doesn't like parahumans, but he also views people as like Maybe not as um, individual individualistic and and with as much respect as he should like like they're panicking like it's an understandable panic but I need to control this
0: yeah that's that's very interesting I didn't think of it that way but, but I think I think you're right um, yeah so as the trucks are coming through people start taking sniper fire and hits from automatic weapons Gary leads the retreat to a safer area reacting on instinct and as they're running he's thinking people followed him. People got shot for following him because they were exposed. And each person he saw fall was a wound in the very fabric of his soul uh, because he was responsible, not wholly for the deaths. People would have died regardless, not wholly as leadership here. Others were supposed to be here to take charge. He was trying, but between and through some alchemy of the two, he was responsible. So this, this kind of stuff makes you like him. Like despite all the other stuff, you know, he's, he's brave. He may even have the, ma- the makings of a good leader. He's just really easy to get riled up and pointed at the wrong targets.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and I think the the great thing is these things don't have to be mutually exclusive, exclusive, right? He can be yeah. a good, he can be a good person to his people while still being a completely bigoted asshole to other people. Like the, those, yeah. those two things can exist
0: simultaneously. Right. And often tend to in real life, actually.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So one of Gary's friends, Ed, brings some old bolt-action rifles and hands them out amongst the volunteers. So it's a brave and pointless gesture. Really, all they do is draw attention to themselves. Uh, A parahuman with a knit mask, which sounds familiar, but I can't really place it. I, I think one of Tattletail's henchmen had a knit mask, but that's not much evidence to go on. Um comes and and attacks them he has some kind of reactive teleportation uh but once the cape kind of sneaks up on them or or approaches them rather he tells them to run instead of just killing them and he only kills them when they fight back so i think this whole thing is probably worth paying attention to
1: yeah i think you're probably right um i i couldn't find any specific on knit mask guy (laughs) Um, I, 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 like you, I felt like this was maybe someone we were supposed to have remembered from something else, but I couldn't find anything. Um, I, I really like the writing here. I like, I like how Gary describes the, um, the process of picking up the gun for the first time and loading the gun and firing the gun. It's like this, this foreign thing that he never thought he would have to do, but he feels like he has to do it. So he's gonna do it and it, it's just like this this whole thing is him pushing him so far out of what he's used to and into this different zone that we're kind of setting up his big like uh his big blow up near the end of of this whole thing and i like how the the wording here of of the gun describes that
0: yeah yeah absolutely
1: because like guns um, guns are Guns are weird for people that don't hold guns, Matt. Like, like, it's not like a movie where you just pick up a gun and fire it for the first time and you're like, oh, I got this. It's a whole right. foreign type of thing. And yeah. I think this, this accurately represents that.
0: Right. Especially a bolt action gun. Like yeah. I, 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 I was imagining like somebody hands me a bolt action gun in the dark. Yeah. I know how to use a bolt action gun, but where's the safety? Like, <laughs> does it have a scope or does it have iron sights? Like, like, like it's. You, yeah, you're basically going to have almost no chance of hitting your target in this situation. And, yeah, but but they they do it anyway.
1: Well, yeah, and I mean you're you're much more versed in guns than than I am, and I think definitely than Gary Neefs is. So, um,
0: yeah, it's 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 a it, yeah. I mean it, it it just makes you feel like it's a it's a brave gesture. It makes you sure, yeah. sure, yeah. Um, so yeah, Gary Gary runs when the parahuman approaches. Um, but he's 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 knocked over by the arrival of a dragoncraft. <gasps> Yay! Defiant does that thing where he either knows or figures out the guy's power and neutralizes him summarily. Yeah, he's Dragons. got that that tech yeah. man that yeah. that
1: helmet tech.
0: Yeah, it's always just just like calmly walks in and dismantles people. It's fantastic. Um, Dragon's arrival rapidly ends the battle. That's My
1: favorite. Think. My favorite people save the day. Surely Gary will have a change of heart now and realize that parahumans are just trying to help.
0: Yeah, especially talking to Dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, he's he's overwhelmed by emotion, seeing all the dead around him, the pointlessness of it. And overriding all of that, there's a kind of personal bitterness to it, knowing how ineffective and disposable he is as a human trying to compete with capes. And he starts to kind of rant at Dragon in Defiance. Um, but he's, he's ranting in a way that's compelling enough that many bystanders are evidently on his side.
1: Yeah. Um, this rant, Matt, I think, I think you're right when you mentioned that, Hey, it's, it's dragon. Like, I think the decision to make this dragon and defiant here that Gary has this rant to is very deliberate. These are not only characters that most people like a lot. These are characters that dragon is seen as one of the probably one of the more morally upstanding people, people in quotes in this world. And, and we had a whole book where defiant kind of was working towards redeeming himself and becoming a better person. So we're, we're putting this guy, Gary in, in line with people that are probably some of the best examples of what capes can be, or, or at least can become. And, and then we have this rant. Yeah.
0: I, I definitely definitely got a smile out of me when uh, Dragon says we're only human. Yeah, yeah. I think neither of you are only human.
1: Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, especially the moment where he's like, I Dragon's like I remembered your name. just like, Well, does it like does it count as remembering yeah. when it's just like a memory yeah. bank? Like, yeah. does that right. does that count?
0: The, yeah, the internet knows it, so I know it.
1: Yeah. Um, the thing that I, I this we'll get into the rant in a bit, but the Gary at the start of this chapter was complaining about how the pair of humans don't show him respect. They don't come up and talk to him. They don't communicate. They don't approach the person in charge and let them know what's going on. Then we have all this bad stuff happen. And then that's the first thing dragon and defiant do after the battle's over. They walk up to Gary and say, you're Gary Neves. You're, you're the one in charge, right? And that's what he wanted, but but Gary has, is too far beyond that now, right? He doesn't he doesn't care anymore. He's already kind of made up his made up his mind.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's just been traumatized. Like that's yeah. Uh, it it, does, it it comes across in the prose that he's he's freaking out right now, but but it's in a way where he has enough composure that that people aren't just like you know yeah. uh, wrapping him in a blanket, right? He's well, he's, he's a politician a
1: He's a politician and yeah, even a, even a panicking politician can still fall back into their politician ways and, and make a speech. And for all his bigotry here, I, I, I get Gary and I, I get the people who hear him speak and find themselves agreeing with things. The world these people live in is terrible. It, it ended. And they're, they're powerless and scared and searching for someone and something to blame and there are these people standing in front of them with superpowers, people that are supposed to protect them. The only ones seemingly with the power to do so. And they feel like they're not. Yeah. And, and look, I, I do think the pair of humans have kind of fucked things up post gold morning. Like, I don't think they're entirely innocent in this. Gary's right that this decision not to tell the population anything about what happened with gold morning, anything with Scion, that they, they made this kind of, I guess unilateral parahuman decision that we're just gonna leave everyone in the dark is probably a bad call. <laughs> and I think he's also right that the parahumans need to reach out to the the normies more, and probably not call them normies, don't do that. Um <laughs> but like the he he mentioned the fact that the the shepherds were there for a week helping out and they didn't talk to any one of us once. And look, they're really busy. They're really stressed out. Being a parahuman is a hard life. But yeah, you should probably like communicate with people. Um, But I think it's why this works, because Gary is being bigoted. Gary is jumping to conclusions and and painting with too broad of a brush. But he's like you said, he's not wrong. And that makes him understandable.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I, I mean, one th- one thing I was thinking about, you know, you mentioned the idea that that maybe the parahumans should communicate more about the fact that Scion, you know, wasn't a parahuman. And I, I've seen this line of discussion. and I, I was thinking about this today, and I was thinking like, I don't know if it would actually help anyone, like Gary, to feel better about parahumans if you were like, if you were like, no, no, it's Scion was an alien. And we all have fragments of him in our brains. Calm down. (laughs) Everything is fine.
1: No. Um, Here's what I look at it as. Okay, so this is a book about recovery, right? So mm -hmm. we have all these characters, and and part of these characters' ability to move past the bad things that happen is to fully understand and work through the bad thing. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about the world... Recovering from this how can we keep the truth of the bad thing from the world and hope that they find a way to recover and Mm -hmm. that that's that's kind of where I land on it that that in order for for the the survivors of the apocalypse to move on from the event they need to be able to fully understand and process the event and if you're just leaving this blank spot where we know this bad thing happened. We don't understand why it happened. We don't understand how it was stopped. We don't get any of it, but you're just expecting us to just carry on with our life. I just think you're, you're just kind of stuck in limbo.
0: I think that's a great point, actually, because as long as it's a question mark, then that just leads you to assume the worst. You just assume that, that, you know, the pair of humans are, more complicit or 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 you know were are less instrumental than they actually were that they're hiding something mm-hmm. and if you're hiding something you're probably hiding it to protect yourself which is sort of true but not in the way that people might assume so yeah i think in this case the secret is probably doing some harm
1: yeah yeah there's one thing I wanted to point out here before we move on. Um, Gary, as part of his rant, says this phrase, they took the sky. And he's referring to parahumans in in general. Again, he's he's putting this all on the shoulders of every single parahuman. But the thing that I liked about this is this is not the first time we've heard that phrase, right? Victoria has said that twice throughout the arc. In both chapter 7.2 and 7.3, she talks about the sky being taken. She is, of course... Um, putting the blame where it belongs on the people that were responsible for it, not all people. Um, but I think I think what this does is illustrate that while Gary's frustrations are not unfounded, he just paints with too big of a brush. He he's he's sitting here talking about how he how like parahumans are making themselves out to be um, more than human. But. By assuming that their powers mean they must be perfect, they can't make mistakes, and and they don't have any problems of their own, isn't he stripping their humanity from them himself?
0: Hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. He he uses they to mean, you know, they, them, the other, the the people I'm scared of, the people I don't like. They're all they're all the same, and and he lumps Sion, the Fallen, and all of the Parahumans in uh, under that umbrella. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you they took our sky like did Victoria Would the Victoria take the sky, the dragon. I mean, it's like since you failed to stop bad thing, you are responsible for bad thing. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, that doesn't seem fail. You you, you failed to stop it, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, at the end of this section, uh, he seems like he's kind of winning the crowd because somebody throws something at the Shepherds, which uh, Moonsong catches.
1: Yep, and that's just we're leaving this thing with signs of, of things to come, and the, the mm-hmm. tension, the tension is mounting. And this is not great. Thanks, Gary.
0: Yeah, thanks, Scott. How did we miss that the torches and pitchforks would arrive on the scene at the same moment the dragon does?
1: <laughs> that's actually pretty perfect.
0: Yeah, I like that. Um, so we we just kind of wrap up this interlude with. Gary uh, a couple of days later, I guess, a few days later, and he's, you know, getting some lunch after a series of funerals and he's approached by a man offering, well, he's overtly offering something like PR consulting, but really he's probably an agent of somebody important uh, wanting to use Gary for political purposes. And he verifies to Gary that Sierra and uh, Citrine, Gene uh, Wynn, are, are involved with villainous capes and he outlines that Accord's plans are good, they will work, and consequently rapidly lead to a multiverse controlled by perihumans.
1: Yeah, and this, to me, Matt, is where any kind of sympathy I have for Gary goes out the window. This is where his hatred and his bigotry rise to such a level that any kind of logical thought process in his head is gone. We have This person coming here to say accords, plans will work. People will be fed. Housing will be built. Order will be restored. Things will be okay. These are all the things that Gary wants, but the order that will be established will be established by a group of people that he hates and he blames for everything and he cannot abide that. So the plan suddenly becomes let's talk about reaching out to other governments for an of another world to solve our problems for you so so he he is okay surrendering power to an authority he doesn't really even know but has decided it's better than surrendering power to an authority that will fix your problems like 100 percent things will recover but you hate them so you can't do it And that's that's when Gary loses me.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a very classic worm ward thing where you fully understand why the person makes the decision they make while simultaneously thinking that they're, you know, a bad guy, basically.
1: Well, and and it's contradictory. When we first met Gary Neves. They were taught he was the one that was furious about the fact that they cut a deal with Earthsea, that they cut a deal for resources like we don't know these people now. Now we owe them. And suddenly, because he's been convinced otherwise, cutting deals with foreign governments is the only way to solve our problems. And this is this feels such like a the enemy of my enemy thing and that always ends up badly. (laughs) Like like you, 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 in your desperation, you reach out to a person you don't fully understand to stop a person you think you understand and it doesn't go well.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think if we've had any other characters who desperately wanted everyone to cooperate and work together, but kind of only if they were listening to her, I mean, uh, them.
1: No, that doesn't sound familiar. I would remember that.
0: Yeah, I would. Yeah. I don't know. Just just thought. Um yeah, so Dae Young offers to share his database of parahuman horror stories, and Gary notes one that just uh, happened a few days ago. Julian and uh Irene Martin.
1: Uh this is a really great way to end this chapter in this arc. We we managed to bring everything back together. Um I, I love that we circle this this whole Gary Neve story back around to the characters we were just with. Um, and I'm really, as much as I know it's going to infuriate me, I'm really excited to see how this plays out because I, I see a world where Irene and Julian, um, paint themselves as the victims and they, this, this, this terrible, terrible person, uh, kidnapped them and, and tortured them and, oh, the pair of humans. And it's just going to be like, we already know Julian has this, this pretty not, very well hidden bigotry of his own. And mm-hmm. it's just going to, it's just going to make me so mad.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can just wait to see Irene with her, with her completely like self-righteous victim, you know, uh, f- fake victim thing on on television or something. It's going to be it's gonna drive me crazy.
1: Right. And in this, I mean, in this PR battle, um, I don't know how Kenzie can win. I mean, like, mm-hmm. It becomes. It becomes. He said. She said. And she's a little girl that everyone's afraid of. And mm-hmm. like, I'm sure. I'm sure they could do some digging and find some record of of her other inappropriate behavior. And this is like, this is so scary to me because like, we had these moments where Kenzie maybe made some progress, and she's starting to she's starting to do that. And this whole thing could could collapse because of this stupid PR campaign.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, makes me very anxious and excited for the next arc.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's it for arc seven.
0: Yeah. Did you have some, uh, some wrapping up type, uh, thoughts, Scott? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I just want to talk about the arc real quick. This is a long episode, so I won't go on for too long. Um, there's a lot happening in arc seven torch. And the thing that surprises me most is as much as there happens here, like plot wise, not a lot goes down, right? Um, like here, here's the events of, of this past arc rain and Ashley go to prison. Kenzie brings the team together to find information on those responsible for the portal bombings. They head to earth N. they track down information on the terrorist group, which leads them to some sort of plot around the prison rain and Ashley are at. Then Kenzie has Victoria over for dinner, and that goes great. Um, Meanwhile, Gary Neves makes moves to formalize the anti-parahuman crowd into a political movement. That's pretty much it, plot-wise. But we have so much happening here character-wise. It is probably the most singularly character-focused arcs that I've seen in Wild Will's work so far, because so much happens with our characters. So much is revealed. So much is explored. There's growth. there's, There's steps back. There's nightmarish backstories and i i am not surprised to say that this is my favorite arc of the book so far i don't know if you agree with that or not but
0: um i don't know if i've thought about it in those terms i mean the fact that this contains essentially sort of contains um eclipse within it also Mm -hmm is a is a, is a, is in its favor in my mind um, it, if if eclipse is its own separate arc then I might be tempted to call that my favorite arc but I don't know if I would go that far either um I just really enjoyed the hell out of eclipse uh yeah no I don't know I'm not gonna get into favorites I'll have to think about that more
1: all right well there's there's a lot I want to talk about here but I think that the the end of the arc summary is a great thing to time to talk about family um, this is one of this is one of the themes of the story, and it's one of the things that came into focus here at the end of this arc. And when you look back on the whole thing, as I did today, you see how that's kind of in arc seven from the very beginning. Um, we have we have um, rain cutting his hair, releasing himself from that that old family. We have Ashley face to face with a sister of sorts realizing that she's, she's not doomed to the life of destruction and misery that she thought she might be that, that her choices have agency and that she can change, um, that she can cut her hair also. Yay. Um, Victoria has a positive conversation with her mother. Yay. Tristan and Byron's complications are heating up and we get hints at, uh, Tristan's rocky road with his family. Chris is still largely a mystery, but Kenzie has her whole thing with her family uh, issues with family and, and family problems plague our characters, but there's another family they all have. And that's each other. And that's when you look and you realize this arc started with a group all but broken up. They had failed their first missions. They felt like failures and they were splitting up. But by the end of the arc, it ends with breakthrough. Like literally they've had a breakthrough and are a team again. And, Carol says to Victoria in this arc that it is rare to have ties or bonds like that. And I think that's just Mm. showing us how important this family is. And so you, you start thinking about this central idea. Let's talk family. What does it mean? What we have issues with our family. And there's this idea that in a book about recovery, if the family you were given is the source of maybe some of the worst trauma in your life, perhaps it can be the family that you choose that can provide you with the recovery you need to get past that. And I I like this a lot when tying how good these people can be for each other and how Carol has seen that this group is good for Victoria. Um, There's moments earlier in chapter 7.2 where the first time Victoria meets with her therapist and and he outlines his plan and says, look, my plan for you in this is to get you better, is to get you through recovery. And she kind of scoffs at that. She says, no, like I... My thing is I need help coping so I can get through the day so I can get out there and help people. Recovery to her is not an option. But maybe with her new family, it is. And I think we see that throughout this arc. We see people maybe making steps to recovery. Like Ashley is a big one to me because Ashley in in the uh, packing Ashley's house chapter, I think that was chapter three, I think. i not sure. Ashley says to Victoria, this is never going to stop being a problem for me. I'm always going to be like this. And Victoria says in that moment, I relate to this. Like, I I am seeing a kindred spirit here. I just had a meeting with my therapist where I was basically saying, I'm I'm never going to get better. It's just dealing with what I have. But by the end of Eclipse, I think we've gotten Ashley to a place where we kind of show that that better is an option, like by putting Ashley face to face with. Uh, a twin of her that made different choices. We show Ashley that there is a way to something different. And if there is a way of something different for Ashley, it means there is a way for something different for Victoria. And I, I think it's through this family that they've created.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. This, I mean, we pointed out at the time that it becomes very obvious how far Ashley's come when you contrast her against an Ashley that made different decisions. Um, uh, th- there's not anyone exactly analogous for Victoria, but there are other characters who probably reflect certain facets of Victoria that you could reflect her off and and show how much she has, uh, um, you know, recovered and how much better she is. Yeah, uh, that's, and, that's something cool to think about.
1: And and uh, to extend this out further, still, we end this chapter on mankind basically in a mess where we're we're going to have this. Um, this coordinated anti-parahuman marketing PR campaign that's going to attempt to get someone who hates these people in charge of the population. And you can't help, but, but extend this metaphor of family to the human race, to this idea that what we need to be doing now is banding together human parahuman um, powers, no powers. People need to be coming together and helping each other recover and Th- what we're seeing is the opposite of that there and and I hope that we can see our group of of heroes that have found each other and come together and and want to help each other recover um help them reflect that out to the world at large as an example of what what people can do to use Taylor's language when they're working together
0: That's a beautiful sentiment, Scott. <laughs>
1: I'm. I'm not ready to not be positive, Matt. We haven't gotten. We haven't gotten dark enough.
0: It's good. It's this is the I torch. I got of my optimism. This the the torch of light and hope. That's what this is. Yeah. That's what torch means, and nothing else. <laughs> all right. I think that's all we have to say about our yeah. seven torch. Um, Great arc. Loved it. Loved it. So, discussion question for this week. Um. Uh, so what, yeah, what's your most, who do you think is the most interesting or just your favorite of the mundane side characters? So by mundane, you mean not parahuman.
1: You know, it's this kind of language, Matt, that encourages this divide between humans and parahumans.
0: I'm sorry. I meant to say normie.
1: (laughs) That's better. There you go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it. Um, that's, that's all we got for you this week. On We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading.
1: Uh, You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at mundane.
0: Yeah. If you're not subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on pretty much any podcast platform.
1: Yeah, and as, as you can find all the other podcasts, we do all of our writing, essays, and film and TV criticism and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. Um, we're taking the week off because it's 4th of July week, so no other shows coming out this week, but the Weaver Dice episode came out just when Matt said it would, so if you haven't listened to episode 3 of Weaver Dice Vegas, it's out. Listen yeah, to that.
0: Check that out. Let us know what you think. Uh, if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. You can donate at do- a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses, like voting in our quarterly fan art contest, which is going to be starting up again uh, pretty soon, uh, Q&A sessions with us, access the live streams of our recording sessions like this very one, and our excellent and lively Discord chat. Special thanks to new Planeteers uh more in chat and Van Spepezi, both at the $1 level. Uh, thanks, guys. We, we appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank um, you very it. much.
0: And as always, make sure you go over to Wildo's Patreon, patreon.com slash Wildo, and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it.
1: And if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by heading on over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a rating. And a review. This week's review comes from El Benito, who gives us five stars and says, I just finished binging the backlog of who knows how many hours of insightful conversation regarding one of the best stories I have and am still reading. Wildbow's sequel to his masterwork in this exciting new frontier of publishing in art is already enthralling and enthralling delight to consume. Then Scott's, Scott and Matt's accompanying literary discussion further bolsters the experience as they offer enlightening writerly insights along with their own personal reactions. Their participation, not to mention Wildbows, in the subreddit and online community is terrific. And I would salute the self-restraint that keeps them from descending into bootless fandom, which I ought to apply instead of posting this unedited review that's gone on for way too long. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Uh, man, I don't know if we do, if we're that good at self-restraint and descending into <laughs> fandom. I don't know. I clapped yeah. when things happened. I, yeah, I, I, I mean, did, I clapped, though. I really I did. I clapped when Dragon showed up. So. Like, like, yeah, yeah my... my reaction to Dragon and Defiant showing up was was definitely dissenting into bootless. Fandom. Yeah.
0: yeah, no, you're right, Scott. That was a terrible compromise. We should not enjoy this at all.
1: Yes, I do not enjoy this book. I just talk about no. it for a 100 hours. Yeah.
0: Right, exactly. Well, that's it for the show this week. Next week, we move on to arc eight, which we will talk about for another 100 hours. Scott, what do you think it's going to be named?
1: Well, judging how we left things. Uh, In this arc, I'm gonna go with arc eight, three alarm fire. Sounds good. How's that work? All right. Is that the most amount of alarms on the fire?
0: Is there a five alarm fire? Seems like five alarm should be a thing. But we'll see you next week to discuss arc eight, five alarm fire.
1: (laughs) You you had like a a little country twinge there (laughs) at the end. I don't know why he did did that. Thank you.